Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. And do we have a choc-o-block packed show lined up for you today? First up, we'll be chatting with Professor Megan O'Donnell, who is Head of Research at the Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health and as well as being a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. Megan has published widely in the area of post-traumatic mental health and tests new and emerging treatments to promote recovery following traumatic exposure. The trauma field has changed dramatically in the last decade, and we'll be asking her to fill us in on the developments. Dr. Sarah Holper is a Melbourne-based trainee neurologist with little wheels, you know, training, who's published research on the impenetrability of doctors' writing and how poor communication can jeopardise patient care. Sarah devised a world-first study identifying the brain region responsible for the aha moment when cracking a crossword puzzle. That is just fantastic. Um, Aha. Over the past decade, she has worked in more than a dozen hospitals in rural towns and city centres, caring for thousands of patients, giving thousands of explanations and answering even more questions. Her new book is titled, What's Wrong With You? An Insider's Guide to Your Insides. And I'm curious to discover just what is wrong with me. Dr. Um, nurse EpiPen. Joining us in the studio will be the ever-present effervescent nurse EpiPen and uh, Australia's next Nobel Prize winner, psychologist Dr. G-Spot. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, for an hour of straight talk and medical expertise here on Radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. First of August. Woohoo! Only four more weeks of winter. You beauty. Is that what it means? Yes. And a couple more weeks till... Triple R's Radiothon. Oh, that's right, the Radiothon. We're already planning our Radiothon and listeners should be rubbing their hands together and getting very excited. Uh, the ones in Victoria can be doing cordial, selling cordial out the front of their house <laughs> and fundraising pies, <laughs> cakes. <laughs> selling cordial outside of Yeah, the kids house do that. My kids did that. My kid, my and herbs and little flowers. Herbs? Yeah. Triple R herbs. Selling. Yeah, I can see that. My daughter used to sell cupcakes. Hey, uh, we should say good morning too, also to Dr. G-Spot. Are you there, G-Spot? Hello, lovely to be with you and I can't wait for Radiothon. Do you have a Radiothon sort of specialty that you're going to be selling outside of your apartment? Herbs? Well, I like cupcakes. the sound of, uh, yeah, uh, EpiPen's herbs there. That sounded pretty <laughs> ominous, didn't it? Um, I'm, I do live near a police station. I'm a little bit concerned. <laughs> Hey. Get the herbs well, quickly. <laughs> hey, um, oregano, thyme. Yeah. yeah. Ca- Cajun spices. What else is there? I love those. Um, oh, Cajun spice. We, oh, I can go on and on yeah, about that. Okay. Hey, um, I'm pointing to a screen because Dr. G-Spot is joining us virtually. Now, G- I am. We, um, we had our very – we had an inaugural pre-show production meeting on Friday with all three of us, with all three of us. And so the show today should run seamlessly because we all know what we're going to be talking about. I know that you're talking about 
Two things. Conspiracy theories in COVID. I have to have a quick look at my screen. Is that right? That's, uh, do you know what? I wanted to talk about panic buying first, if I might, Dr. Uh, Mao. See, that production okay. meeting works so well. <laughs> I, you know what? I think it may be our worst ever, the fact that we actually prepared. Let's see. Mm. We'll get feedback from our audience. Um, so I, first up, I wanted to congratulate the people of Melbourne and Victoria for seemingly reducing their panic buying as uh, as the lockdowns have gone on. Have you guys noticed that too? Yes, because the last lockdown, there's still toilet paper. Do you know, I noticed that because uh, the supermarket that I go to prepared for it and now there's, there were like mountains of toilet paper that people weren't buying. So that's a really good sign. I agree. And, and this is something I've been reading up on in the literature, uh, particularly by uh, Professor Melissa Norberg at Macquarie University and her colleagues. Yeah. And, and they've been looking at why people might panic buy, particularly mm-hmm. in relation to what we've been seeing in Sydney mm-hmm. and New South Wales more recently. They're still into their panic buying, it would seem. So what they found was that people who are most likely to panic buy were those who already had anxiety about their personal health. Ah. People who perceived products would be scarce, which seemed to happen, and people who saw others panic buying. So a bit of a contagion effect there. And they thought the reasons that people might be panic buying was that it's a deep habitual instinct to try and calm our anxieties through purchasing things. But, of course, we saw that the reality was that stocking up on toilet paper doesn't necessarily make us feel better. And what they found was that in Melbourne, we have learnt that through a series of lockdowns. But the people in Sydney and New South Wales, they're still learning that. So that's why they're still seeing panic buying there, or at least that's what the theory is. And have we? what's that psychological phenomenon? Is it called, not extinguishing, extinguishing? When you keep having the same stimulus, but then it doesn't have the same effect? Is that called For sure. conditioning? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, a condi- it's under the conditioning theory. It's like you keep having the same stimulus like lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. But exposure you think, and response prevention. That's right, exposure and response prevention. That's right, yeah. And you're thinking, no, nah, I don't need to now, I don't need to now. And then you just think, yeah, I really don't need ERP. to. ERP, ERP, three letters. Three-letter acronym. Beautiful. So, <laughs> so I just wanted to, again, say a big shout-out to everyone in Melbourne and Victoria for not buying so much toilet paper and keeping it on the shelves. And the people of New South Wales will learn that eventually, I'm well, sure. we could send all our excess toilet paper to New South Wales. We really could, but I think we should keep it for ourselves. Well, <laughs> stop filing. Yeah, panic, exactly, stop filing. Exactly. I, I didn't say everyone had stopped panic buying. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone stopped hoarding. <laughs> no, I'm sure we could send them a few sheets. Um, I also wanted to chat about conspiracy <laughs> theories as well, because well, like obviously this. we're seeing a fair bit of that going on around the place. Yep. Have you guys seen some on, on social media and things like that? Um, I have seen the most revolting clip by, and I'm going to name him, shame and name. I'm sorry whether I'm allowed to do this or not, but no, Rob's, yeah, he's he's a New South Wales um, broadcaster who's just says the most shocking things, says the whole pandemic is pathetic and or he doesn't believe in anything and we're not doing the right things anyway and people wear their mask for, you know, days on end and don't wash them, so what's the point? And, and also... Well, isn't that, that more about people should be wearing fresh masks <laughs> rather than what's the point? Yeah, well, well, indeed. <laughs> but I have got a couple of patients that get all their information from YouTube 
and mm, they the don't danger, watch, and they don't, and they just think there's metal still in in vaccines, and it's a farmer scoop, and it's a political point winner. Well, I'm really curious to hear what um, G Spot has to say because I've I've read a few things and listened to a lot of things about conspiracy theories, and it's 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 far more widespread than than I would have hoped than it is, isn't it, uh, G Spot? It really is Dr. Malpractice and it's something that I've always been very interested in and I'm really glad to see the research coming out about this, uh, particularly by uh, Earnshaw et al., and uh, published in Stigma and Health and Translational Behavioural Medicine. And I think in the past, we used to, the research used to suggest that people who were more likely to bind to conspiracy theories had traits like narcissism and, and paranoia associated with psychopathy. But what they're finding now with these COVID-19 conspiracy theories is that people are turning to these things in, a, in an attempt to restore feelings of safety and control. So it's that people are feeling anxious, powerless and unable to control their outcomes in a time of a large scale crisis. So it's not necessarily that these people are narcissists or paranoid. It's that they're anxious and they're trying to make sense of the world. So I wanted to throw that out there to you guys, because I think sometimes people get a bit of a bad rap for believing in these things. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's and it's you know I've I've come across people who are uh, erstwhile intelligent and um, urbane and friendly and nice and um, we have a chat and we, you know they say oh you're a doctor so you must know about um, the tracking in the vaccines and I I'm absolutely shocked and I the first couple of times this happened to me my natural response it was just to laugh. Um, which isn't a good way of trying to understand where the person's from. So uh, the next couple of times I just say, well, tell me more about it. And I'm just so surprised how, you know, erstwhile intelligent people can believe this stuff. And then I saw a a YouGov poll which said that um, in the States, something like I think it was 20% of people believe that uh, the vaccines contain something extra in them to allow for some conspiracy theory like... um, um, gaining um, uh, like 5G tower positions or something like that. <clears throat> and it just blew me away that so many people could believe that. And, and it can't be that they're of narcissism, as you say. It must be some way of making sense of the world. But that's just, I found that quite sad, really, G-Spot. I, I agree, Dr. Mal, and I think probably what these both of these behaviours that we're talking about this morning of panic buying and... Um, and believing in conspiracy theories, it's really just us trying to make sense of a world where we just feel so out of control. And yeah. I think that kind of yeah. sets us up yeah. for today's guests quite nicely. I like to think so anyway, the audience can tell us. So yeah, it's it's basically we're all feeling a bit powerless at the moment and, it, and people are just trying to regain a sense of yeah. control and they're doing so however they can. I think that's a very generous and nice way of thinking about it, that it's just people's way of... <laughs> no, 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 and I like that way of thinking about it. It's, yeah. It's a way of... Um, trying to put uh, structure around uncertainty and unknowns of constructing Ex- exactly. the world. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's, you know, our, our illustrious leaders, I know they listen into our show, yeah. hey, hey out there in Canberra. So I think if you try to sort of help to change people's minds, it's by giving them that sense of security and not mm. shaming them for doing yeah, certain absolutely. absolutely. So in Sydney, there's a centre called the National Centre for Immunisation Surveillance and Research. 
and mm. they've got some really good documents about how to talk to people that are vaccine hesitant. And it's Wonderful. really, yeah, and it's very much for health professionals and people that are pro-vaccines because mm. it, it, you don't, um, you know, laugh at them yeah. or disregard their yeah. and you respect them and just slowly understand where their information has come from and what their fears are and sit with them thinking about it. And on top of that, there's been some really good um, news coming out from and ads from people in the US and the UK where they were anti-vaxxers even, not even mm. vaccine hesitant, mm. where their family member has mm. got COVID mm. and now they're out there telling people Promoting, that yeah. they're absolutely rue the day that they mm. poo-pooed it. Mm. And that's a nice you know, that's another nice message, unfortunate for them, but to get out there, to swing some of those people around a little bit that are not wanting to get the vaccines. And I think that that idea of not shaming people when they have um, uh, ideas that you may think are incredibly wrong uh, is, in, is is so true because otherwise you polarise them, they go into their camp and they really defend against their position. Yep. Whereas if you go there with a, a sense of curiosity, which can be very hard sometimes, yeah. that allows them to come forward and to discuss things. And I've had a number of um, situations where it's not just uh, vaccine hesitancy or uh, being anti-vaccine, but you know issues to do with racism as well. Mm. Where the the subject of the racism said, "No, tell me, tell me about yourself. Tell yep. me why you don't like Correct. it." Correct. And it's it's it, it can be much more powerful than saying than than than, than ostracising that that, yep. that group of people. Yeah, such yep. interesting stuff. I'll, I'll put the link up on Triple R on the Radiotherapy um, Instagram. We have an Instagram page. Page. Oh, God, Mal. <laughs> you are listening to Radiotherapy with me, Dr. Mal Practice. He's a bit of a Luddite. Um, nurse EpiPen That's and uh, Dr. G Spot. Coming up, we'll be speaking with Professor Megan O'Donnell. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. In the studio is moi, Nurse EpiPen, and Dr Mal Practice. And in the Zoom world, we've got Dr G-Spot, Dr Holpen, and Dr. Oh, Professor Megan O'Donnell. Megan, I've got some questions for you. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about where you work? I've been there's something about Phoenix Australia. What what is that organisation, please? So, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, good. Um, Phoenix is a centre in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. It's an independent centre and our mission is very much to focus on recovery and well-being after traumatic events. Uh, so it's really looking at how we um, can help people recover, help people adapt and help people respond to, to trauma. Oh, fabulous. And uh, one of the areas that you are very focused on is, P. well, you've mentioned trauma, so PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. Would, what, what, would you like to tell us what that is, please, how it's diagnosed? Post-traumatic stress disorder is one outcome after people respond, you know, been through a traumatic event. So when, when I talk about a traumatic event, what I mean is 
and of course in psychiatry we define these things but it's really about someone going through a situation an event or a series of events that's quite overwhelming to the person and they think they're going to die they feel um, that their life is threatened or um, and that, that, that death is impending. And so when people, so um, for example, recent um, bushfires might be an example of a disaster. You know, Australia has lots of disasters and so we often see um, these as traumatic events because people often feel their lives are threatened. And so what happens is most people can respond to that event um, and recover afterwards. So the majority of people going through a traumatic event do are resilient and do recover from those events. But there's a small minority who go on to develop disorders, mental health um, difficulties, and post-traumatic stress disorder is one of those. PTSD is um, characterized by four sets of um, experiences. The first is that the memory of the traumatic event is re-experienced. And so we often see people who have had their traumatic event 20 years ago, and yet when they recall the traumatic event, the memory of the trauma is so intense, it's like it's happening all over again. So the memory hasn't evolved at all. And maybe we can talk about how memory changes uh, in people who recover from trauma, but for people who develop PTSD, the memory and the fear and the distress kind of stays stuck in time. And so the person experiences, a keeps kind of experiencing that traumatic event over and over again because the trauma is really fixed in their memory. And because it's so distressing, they avoid reminders of it. So that's the next set of symptoms. They avoid reminders, anything that triggers the memory of the event. And this can be quite disabling. People stop doing things because they're reminded of the event. And then we have a whole pile of symptoms, the distressing symptoms, they're called hyperarousal symptoms. So mm. feelings of um, panic, feelings of um, distress, mm. difficulty sleeping, concentrating, mm. all those kinds of things. Uh, and finally, what also happens over time is that people develop negative mood and cognitions associated with this. So they start thinking about the world or themselves or other people in a very negative way. And they'll often experience other um, uh, emotions such as shame or guilt or other distressing emotions. So that kind of captures the when I'm diagnosing someone of PTSD, I try to look for all those symptoms um, that, that uh, they might be presenting with. Mm. Interesting. Um, and if somebody, if two people have the same traumatic event, why could somebody end up with the trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder and the other person not? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? Look, there's lots of things that um, increase someone's vulnerability for developing post-traumatic stress disorder. The first is uh, the perception of the event. So two people can go through the same experience but perceive it quite differently. Mm. And you often see these in um, traumatic events such as car accidents um, or, you know, what's really, what's really interesting is when um, well, let's say a bank robbery and someone um, thinks, you know, is, is being held up um, in, a, in a bank and it 
the, the person thinks they're going to die because they have a gun pointed to their head. And then they find out later that the gun was plastic. So there never was any danger to them. But it's a perception that the, they were in danger and their life was threatened. And that imprints the trauma in the memory. That's the thing that's really important here. So perception, how someone perceives their original traumatic event is really important. And then there's a whole pile of other vulnerabilities. Female gender is a vulnerability, prior trauma. So if you, there's this kind of um, cumulative burden of trauma. If you've had traumatic experiences before, that cumulative trauma you bring to the new traumatic event. Um, and then there's other things such as your coping style, how you and your personality, um, you, you bring that into the traumatic event. And they're the kinds of things that will impact as to whether someone develops PTSD or not. But the most important thing, and this is a really important message for recovery as well, it's, a, it's about your social support. If you have really good social support around you, if you have people you can confide in and talk to and create a safe space for you, because let's face it, trauma is about being out of control and very unsafe. If you have people around you who can create safety, that is so protective. And often we'll see the people who go through the similar traumatic events, the ones who recover really well are the ones with these social people around them, friends, family, who they can confide, confide in um, and feel safe with, that's very, very protective. Wow, that's great. I was just going to say, um, Megan, that psychiatrists and psychologists try to make things difficult. You've made that very, very clear and um, very understandable. Um, but what, when you talk about cognitions, um, that's just thoughts, isn't it? So when we say cognitions... That just means thinking, yeah? Yeah, and yeah. thinking's so important. Yeah. As a, uh, I'm a psychologist, a clinical <clears throat> psychologist, so um, I spend a lot of time with my clients exploring thoughts mm. and how people think about the world. And, uh, you know, my favourite saying is just because we think it doesn't mean it's true. And so we often explore the way <clears throat> that if we think about the world differently, maybe we can have a different emotional experience. And that can be really powerful, especially with PTSD, where people have lots of thoughts around the world being very dangerous or other people being very dangerous. And so we can explore that and think about, mm -hmm. is there another way of um, thinking about them, their place in the world and the world around them? Can we take in new information that will help change the way you think about that about the world or other people, and that can change uh, someone's emotional world. So if somebody's listening to the show right now and has PTSD, where, where can they go to get some help? The thing about PTSD is we have some really good treatments for it. Most of the treatments are talking treatments, um, and they involve, uh, they're called trauma-focused treatments. And what that means is that the therapist uh, creates a safe place for a person to talk about the trauma and explore the traumatic event and bring new information into that trauma, that trauma traumatic memory. So we help the memory evolve in a safe space. And so um, therapists, so psychologists and psychiatrists who've been trained in trauma-focused therapies are 
the best people to deliver, deliver that treatment. We are exploring new treatments of PTSD. I think um, one of the really exciting things is that um, we're exploring either therapies that we can put on our trauma-focused therapies to make them better. And we're also looking at therapies that may be a non-trauma-focused. So we can um, look at recovery in a, in a different way. Um, and that, that could be really exciting too. So we have good treatments, but they don't work for everyone. And so the challenge for me as a researcher and for our centre, um, Phoenix Australia, is how, to, how do we make better treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder? That's, yeah, terrific. Um, there's probably a hundred questions to ask, and I know Dr. G Spot's going to ask something, but I'm just going to pip in here because I've got a question about d living in COVID. So, do you an anticipate an influx of people, children, being diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder during this time and even hopefully when this pandemic ends? Look, uh, it's not do I anticipate it, I'm already seeing it. Right, yeah. It's already the case. And so we're speaking from Melbourne and um, what we saw was uh, with the various lockdowns, we do get an escalation in referrals to our clinic. So Phoenix Australia has a traumatic stress clinic. But I'm speaking to all my colleagues around Australia, we do see this escalation in mental health problems after uh, during COVID, especially in lockdown. And that's not, a, you know, in many ways... COVID can be traumatic, but generally people, um, they experience PTSD because they have an exacerbation of pre-existing problems. So when you, when, you know, we're talking about how important your social support is, your family and your friends and how they're very helpful in your well-being and your mental health and quarantine and lockdown takes that away from you. And, and it puts stress on relationships. So when you're locked in with people, that's the other side of it. You're locked with people in, a, in, your, um, in your house during lockdown. That puts stress on your relationships. And then you're not seeing people. That's put stress on, on you and, how, um, and your well-being. So that's why we often see an exacerbation of, of symptoms. So people who may have um, underlying mental health problems, may, they may have um, underlying post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, but in a, in a COVID environment where you can't do your usual things to keep yourself well, you can't exercise as freely, you can't see your social supports, we, we see an escalation in symptoms. And that's, and also, can I say, the other stressors, you know, stress in that um, stress, it really impacts people's mental health. And if you've already got underlying problems, it, it, it could tip you over into really needing extra support and see, seeking um, psychological or psychiatric support. So, you know, COVID is very, very stressful on so many different dimensions. So this is why we're seeing an escalation of people presenting for mental health um, problems. Um, just before we get to uh, Dr. G-Spot's question, because she's champing at the bit, Megan, whereabouts should people go? I mean, should if somebody's thinking they've got um, uh, something they'd want to talk about following a traumatic event, I mean, where where's the best place to start? Look, the, the first place to start is to talk to your GP. Mm -hmm. 
primary care is a really, really important place to start. Your GP will understand um, your <clears throat> mental health um, situation. They will help diagnose uh, what you're actually presenting with and they will be able to refer you to good um, mental health care. Can people hop on to the Phoenix website? Do you have information there or should they go to Beyond Blue or other places as well? The um, Phoenix Australia has some really good information about if you're looking for treatment for post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress disorder, the kinds of questions you might want to ask your therapist. So okay. you want, if you're referred to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you want to make sure you're getting evidence-based treatments. And we have good information about how to ask that of your therapist or of um, your psychiatrist that you've been referred to. The um, Australian Psychological Society has a referral um, network where you can go online and you can say what problems you have and um, some local therapists will come up who specialise in that disorder. So you can go there. But I'd really encourage people to start with your GP who make sure you get an appropriate referral. Uh, enjoying this discussion so much, Megan. I'm a big fan of the APS Finder Psychologist Service. I'm on there. Hit me up, peoples. Just uh, <laughs> sorry for the shameless plug there. Uh, so, Megan, I think something I've seen in my clinical practice and I've also discussed with my colleagues is people presenting with PTSD literally decades after the, the key trauma with seemingly no symptoms and then suddenly this burst of symptoms. I was wondering if you had any explanation for that. So this is what we call delayed onset and um, delayed onset PTSD, where exactly as you describe, um, a person's looking like they're doing, they're tracking okay, and then all of a sudden, many years later, they present with PTSD. Sometimes that's because, um, and the military is a really lovely example of this, Someone might in the military might experience a traumatic event, but because they're, um, they have structures around them within their, their, their purpose and their, um, their job within the military, um, they're able to keep, um, they're, they're able to keep functioning because they have these structures around them. And it's not to, and often we see this, when people are discharged from the military, we see this escalation in that transition space. Uh, we see escalation in mental health problems. And that's because that structure, that, that, that purpose, um, the value that they get from their um, occupation, which has kept them well and safe. And, um, you know, often, They'll have uh, people around them who understand them and kind of get them and often have been through similar experiences or so that shared experience that keeps people well. And you take that away from someone when they transition out of the military and that's why we see this escalation in mental health. So, so sometimes it's a change in what's happening um, and other times what happens is um, we might call it subclinical PTSD where in fact they're still functioning okay after a traumatic event but they've got some escalation in some symptoms and then another, either another trauma happens 
or extra stress happens in their environment. Maybe they go through um, a family breakdown, a divorce, stressors like that. So their social support changes and then you see people escalate in symptoms and they present with a disorder, so post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's usually a there's been a change or a trauma or increase in stressors and that leads to movement towards a disorder. Absolutely, Megan. Such a great example there of delayed onset. I suppose my colleagues and I were also wondering, could people tap into, I suppose, that avoidance cluster of symptoms and maybe that keeps them supposedly well for a long time and then suddenly they can't avoid anymore? Look, to be honest, avoidance is one of the reasons that post-traumatic stress disorder develops in the first place. Uh, and that is, you know, we're talking about the memory of a traumatic event. And when people um, have a tra trauma, um, what happens is the memory has all this fear associated with it. So when you go through a traumatic event and you think about it, you've got a lot of fear, you've got a lot of stretch, a lot of distress. And for people who recover, that memory gets new information put into it. So, and it's, it's kind of curious, isn't it, to think about our memories change over time and that's really really healthy so memories evolve they're not a direct recollection of what actually happens and that evolution of memory is really exciting and it's very it's very helpful for us so what happens to someone who recovers after a traumatic event is they put new information into that memory they recall the memory they think they you know they have that fear and then they go oh but I'm safe now or uh, my family are very supportive and they put that into the memory and then they go oh you know the memory says oh, you know I think I'm going to die and then they go but I didn't die and that goes into the memory mm. so the memory evolves and it changes and they learn that they're no longer in danger and that helps them not develop a disorder what happens with PTSD is the memory stays stuck mm. and so new information is not incorporated into it and the reason we think that happens is because people avoid thinking about it so there's not an opportunity they don't bring the memory they don't recall the memory and put new information into it they're so avoidant they don't think about it. And it just to start off with, there's some short-term benefits of avoidance because you actually don't get anxious and you don't get distressed and that's really good. But the long-term consequences is your memory doesn't evolve and that could be, a, that's the problem. So you're right in some ways that some people who are really, really, really avoidant can uh, look like they don't have um, mental health problems. But what it is, is often they are really constraining their life in many ways and not doing things. And that avoidance breaks down. And then you see, and this is why the delayed onset can often happen if you've got a great a great avoider so someone who's really really good at avoiding uh you're right if there's a situation where they can their, their situation changes and they can't avoid so um well then they're going to start getting these intrusive symptoms breaking through and that's when you start seeing um problems megan i've i've, I've heard dozens of people try or dozens of people explain um trauma-focused CBT um, in lay terms, and that would yours was the best explanation I've uh, ever heard uh, of how trauma-focused CBT works. That was just gold. Oh, I, I totally agree. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to steal it. No, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to have to come my, and see you. That was just magnificent. <laughs> Look, we were going to ask you lots of things. I was champing at the bit to ask you about um, psychedelics, MDMA in particular, and its use in PTSD. Unfortunately, we don't have time, but can we get your commitment on air that you'll come back and talk to us again 
I'd love to. It's really, it's a really interesting thing to talk about. There's lots of energy at the moment to look at psychedelics. And I think that, um, I don't know if you realize our government just did a really yeah. big grant call for uh, testing psychedelics for mental health disorders. So there's a nice energy out there for us to explore these as a, as treatments for mental health problems and yeah. especially PTSD. It's a mushrooming field. Oh, very funny. Ha, ha, ha. I've got a joke. Yeah? Yeah. yeah? Okay, so in the show, we always have a couple of jokes that's related to the guests and their expertise. So don't take this personally, um, Megan. Um, at, a, at a job interview for a new receptionist, the, the employer said to the person, I see you used to be employed by a psychotherapist. Why did you leave? She said, well, I just couldn't win. If I was late to work... I was hostile. If I was early, I was anxious. If I was on time, I was obsessional. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> it was funny in the green room. <laughs> oh, <laughs> let's try Gemma's one. Gemma's got a quick I, one. I think we might just hold on to Gemma's until the next segment because oh, okay. we are pushing for time. You okay. are listening to 3 Triple R. This is Radiotherapy with me, Dr. Mal practice um nurse EpiPen, dr g spot and we've just been speaking with professor megan o'donnell from phoenix australia this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia triple r is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding if you would like to financially support triple r by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how i am so excited for our next guest it's me dr. too sarah holper who has written a fantastic book called What's Wrong With Ya? Is it Ya or You, Sarah? What's in the title? Oh, well, sorry, 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 Sarah. We'll go with Ya. We'll go with Ya. What's wrong with Ya? How did you come up with the title, I want to ask you? Well, I sort of realised that the every chapter I was writing was the answer to what's wrong with me? You know, <laughs> oh, why nice, do I have this nice one. Why am I going bald? Why have I got a headache? And then I kind of just changed the pronoun. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> that's, that's the title of my next book. Yeah, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Um, so, Sarah, tell us, just before we get into the guts of the book, um, I mean, you're a neurology trainer, which I imagine doesn't leave you with a lot of uh, spare time. Um, how did you come up with the concept and where did you find the time to write this book? The concept was was pretty easy. So I don't know if you remember back in your internship days, Dr. Mal, you spend a lot of time speaking to families who don't understand what's going on with their relative in hospital. You know, questions like, what, what does this pneumonia mean? And, mm. you know, they said some bacterial name, what does that mean? So I, I really enjoyed going and speaking to families after hours and explaining why their grand was having, you know, this operation or that mm. procedure. And I found that the explanations often went down pretty well. They made sense to the mm. families and they'd asked me to write it down so they could tell Aunt June when she comes in later. Mm. So I started doing that and I got to the point where I thought, this is, you know, there must be some book I can recommend to mm. them or a website or something that, that I could sort of spruik and, and give out to these families that want to know about how their body works. And I found they didn't really exist in anything like that. I mean, you've got sort of websites that talk about tummy aches and speak to the patient like they're a child. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got really difficult Latin stuff that's aimed at health professionals, but nothing in the middle for just intelligent, curious adults. Mm. So I, I sort of wrote it in my free time. We've got lots of free time in lockdown. I guess that was when I got most of it done. Yeah. One of the things that you do talk about the book is our propensity and, you know, doctors as well, we resort, resort, we like to Google because uh, we want information. But that, I mean, it's 
nothing is wholly good nor wholly bad, as Shakespeare said. Some, you know, tell us about Googling, what, what the effect that has on people's health anxiety. I think that you're completely right, Dr. Mal. I, I don't think that the blanket Dr. Google is bad. Mm. That sort of sentiment isn't, isn't helpful because I think people really want to know how their body works and we turn to Google for everything else. And um, so long as we can filter what we're reading on Dr. Google, then it can be helpful. And I found that one in every 15 Google searches is health-related. One in every 15. That's, that's mad. It's over a billion Dr. Google consults every day. So clearly people do want to know how their body works. But the issue sort of relates back to what we were discussing at the start of this show about sort of health anxiety and conspiracy theories. And if you don't know what you don't know, you read some conspiracy theory and you think, yeah, 5G. Mm. I mean, mm. that, that would give you a headache, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, but what I, I think is important to point out is that this whole conspiracy theory thinking and health anxiety and Dr. Google, it's nothing new. So humans have this innate desire to want to have control over the world around them, to want to know why things are happening to them. And we can often resort to magical thinking to try and um, come up with an answer to our questions, including about pandemics. So something I came across writing my book was uh, during the Great Plague of London in, 19, in 1660s, rather, everyone was obviously terrified. Nobody knew what caused the Great Plague. And um, there was this idea that it was caused by bad air, okay? So there was this um, treatment that went around where you would get a glass jar and you would fart into it and then quickly seal it. And then you'd wear that glass jar around your neck as a necklace. And then the idea was if you're walking down the street and somebody sort of coughs on you and puts bad air towards you, you quickly whip out the jar, open it, take a whiff, and that bad air sort of displaces the bad plague air, right? And so then you don't get infected with the plague air. Yeah, so, I mean, that didn't work. What, but that doesn't work? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. I mean, I haven't tried it. Maybe, it, fair, maybe I need a bigger jar. Yeah, that... Um, I've never, I mean, I've heard of lots of wacky things, but that's pretty incredible. Um, you've, you've... I mean, that was hundreds of years ago. So clearly this is an innate human problem that spans centuries. It's not unique to, to our generation. Yeah. Um, I'm still bamboozled by that. Tell us some other things that you talk about in the book about people who have Googled stuff. Oh, my gosh. So many, so many examples. Well, I mean, a real world patient that I had recently was a young woman who... Um, had come back from India on a gap year a few years ago when we were still allowed to travel. And she quickly developed this patch of numbness on the outside of her thigh. And she was really worried by it and she was Googling it and she concluded that she had leprosy. And leprosy can cause many symptoms, including patches of numbness. So when she came to see me in the neurology outpatient clinic, she was terrified mm -hmm. and, you know, thought that she was going to be sent to a colony with a bell. Um, so I thought, look, you know, let's, can I just have a look at this patch of numbness and the skin looked fine, but what didn't look fine was a few centimetres above the patch of numbness was her underwear cutting into her thigh uh, very, very tightly. Uh, and I sort of said to her, look, you know, gosh, your, your undies are a bit tight. She's like, yeah, yeah, when I was in India, I put on a lot of weight and I, have, you know, I probably should wear some, some loose on. I said, when you, you know, if you take your undies off over the weekend or whatever, if you're wearing just some shorts, do, do, you still, do you still get the numbness? And she goes, oh, no. It goes away, but Google said that leprosy can wax and wane. So, uh, yeah, so the problem there was the tight undies cutting off the, the nerve supply to the outside of her thigh. So that was a bad example of Dr. Google. Do you I wonder if you learned this in medical school. Ask the questions, how tight are your undies, just in case you've got a 
Paris. Is it called Paris? It should be part of the screening questions for peripheral neuropathy. How tight are your undies? Peripheral neuropathy. Do you have tight undies? That that is. But erstwhile, and these people can be very are very intelligent. And I've certainly met lots of people who are highly, you know, captains of industry and you know, very very smart people who Google stuff and they think, oh, it's got to be true. I mean, just a piece of advice when people are Googling, do you have any kind of go-to rules or, or suggestions with what information they should or shouldn't be looking at? Yeah, re- really good question. So I think that learning about basic anatomy, so the structure of your body and sort of chemical processes, your metabolism, that stuff is not really open to interpretation. So if you can find that even, you know, even Wikipedia sites, heaven forbid, are pretty good with anatomy because it's not, not open to interpretation. The struggle is when you start putting in your symptoms into some sort of algorithm to try and get an answer. Because technically, if you if you have a headache and sometimes you feel a bit nauseated and it hurts to look at the light, Google might tell you that you have a brain tumour. And I mean, mm. technically, mm. that could be true, mm. but it's so much more likely that you have a tension-type headache or a migraine. Mm. So that's where the problem with Dr Google comes in. They tell you things that, I mean, technically, they're not wrong, they're just not titrated to you and your demographics and your risk factors. So they're possible but not probable because of who you are. Yeah, they exactly don't know everything right. about you. Um, one of the things that I always say is to when I look for a reputable site, I, I kind of like .orgs um, or from big hospitals or, or big clinics that I know, like you know the Mayo or the I know, Kidney Foundation of Australia or the Heart Foundation because I know them and they're reputable and their information is going to be good compared to – Dr. Bob's wacky treatment for YouTube, something or other. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, if I shove garlic on my, I don't know, sore toe, it'll make a better type of thing. So, I wondering how you're going to end that. that yeah, I, I, I cleaned it up. Um, <laughs> now, just can, while we're talking about headaches, you know, part of the reason I do this radio show is to get a personal consult. Um, now, if, if I've uh, apparently headaches, there are more migraines now than we thought. Like people presenting with headaches 20 years ago might get diagnosed with, oh, you got a tension headache. Now people think, mm, it might be migraine. Tell us the difference between a migrainous headache and a non-migrainous headache. Does that make sense? Mi- migrainous. Migrainous. No, I'm, I'm using the Italian pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I find that psychiatrists say that they're called psychiatrists. Like, no, they're an actual God. psychiatrist. So it's migraine like is often used. Sorry, go <laughs> the word um, migraine is often used by people to just mean oh, a really bad headache. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you've got a headache and then you've got a migraine. But they're actually really distinct, different um, entities. So some migraines don't even include head pain as part of the process. So a migraine is a really fascinating phenomenon that um, is really due to misfiring of nerves within the brain. So the first part of a migraine might be a few days before you even get your headache. Some people feel really thirsty. They might have, um, you know, they want to eat sweet food or they just get a bit more irritable. They just don't feel, feel quite themselves. And then you can experience what's called an aura. So this is often sort of visual symptoms like Um, shining lights in your periphery or this concept of fortification spectra which is a ridiculously long word but it means fortifications like a medieval fort if you took a bird's eye view of a medieval fort they sort of have these geometric shapes so people who are about to get a migraine can see those geometric shapes in their peripheral vision and then and then after that um, aura bam you get the headache and it it often starts at the back of the head but not always and it can be pulsing on one side Mm. so migraines from the greek for pain in half your head 
It's, it makes you stop what you're doing. You can't do your work. It's not an option. Often you have to go and lie down in the dark to just sleep it off. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really severe. In terms of what actually causes the pain, it's, it's a little bit unknown still, but we, we think it's due to this slow wave of nerve discharges moving across the surface of the brain, activating the um, trigeminal nerve system, which is involved with pain sensors oh. around, around the brain. And then after the migraine, you just feel washed out, like you, yeah. as though you've run a marathon. It's just awful. And you can be sort of off your ability to even think. You can find it hard to find words yeah. um, after you've had a migraine for a few days. So people who have a migraine, you know, who take time off school and work, sometimes people go, oh, gosh, it's just a migraine. Like, you know, can't be that bad. If you really have migraines, mm. they are debilitating. It mm. puts you out for days at a time. So definitely distinct from your bread and butter tension type headache, which can be bad, but might be able to be treated with a bit of Panadol and, and glass of water. You know, when I was at medical school, so like this is last century. A very, very long time ago. Last millennium. We... we were taught that it was due to the um, the linings of the brain, the dura or the pia mater, or the, what's the other one? Dura pia mater, arachnoid. Arachnoid. So dura, it was the lining. Dura mater. Yeah, the, the linings of the brain getting irritated. Is that no longer the thought for migraines? You are you are pr- half right. So the brain yeah. itself doesn't have pain receptors, yeah. right? So that's why you can do brain surgery on people when they're awake. So you can crack open their skull. They should be anesthetized for this bit. You're looking at us like people at home don't do this. (laughs) Use a bit of local. Um, Crack open their skull and then you cut through the dura, which is the lining, the tough lining of the brain. But once you get to the brain itself, it doesn't have pain receptors. Mm. So if you're having a headache, the pain itself doesn't come from the brain tissue. It comes from the pain sensitive structures around it. And you're completely right, Dr. Mal, it's that dura that has the pain um, receptors in it. So that's where the pain is actually coming from, not not the brain tissue itself. Yeah, so something's never changed. Hey, uh, Dr. G-Spot, I know you want to ask lots of questions. I do. I have so many questions for Dr. Holker. Congratulations on your fantastic book. I'm sure it's going gangbusters in terms of sales. Um, something I found really interesting was the research about circadian rhythms and how that was deciphered. Care to tell us more? Oh, this is so interesting. So circadian rhythms mean the 24-ish hour-long cycles of behaviour, of biological activity that your body does. So sleep-wake cycle, for example, that's the most obvious one. But your body goes through other cycles as well, like your body temperature fluctuates, your coldest at 4am and your hottest at 6pm. Hormones get released in a circadian fashion. So all of these processes in our body follow these 24-hour cycles. And the reason that we know that is from these fascinating studies that were slightly unethical done in the 1960s. So there was this German physician called Jürgen Aschoff, and he built this underground bunker, and he somehow convinced people to go in there one at a time as volunteers and just live there without any clocks, without windows, without any way of knowing the time for a few weeks at a time. Now, I have no idea how he recruited people. Presumably, you know, the trope of evil scientists with a torture dungeon didn't exist back in the 60s. And he did say uh, that a lot of the students, a lot of the volunteers were students who used it as an opportunity for free food and board and they crammed for their exams. Anyway, once they were in the bunker, he locked them in and he said to them, just live a normal life. I'm going to be watching you 
But just, you know, if you feel tired, go to bed. If you want to get up, get up. There's a kitchen. Help yourself to food whenever you want. Um, keep the rectal probe in because I need that for your temperature recordings. Don't take that out. What? And every time you wee. Put a rectal probe in people? Yeah, yeah. You need to know their body temperature 24-7. So you've you got to be able to chart it accurately. Oh I mean, they goodness. got free food and board, Dr. Mel. So, I'm not know, sure that's a fair exchange. They're, they're <laughs> tiny. They're tiny. But, I, but so, 24 hours, Jeez. sorry, you got uh, I know, it would have been uncomfortable. Um, so what happened was he got quite a few of these volunteers, about 50 to go in, and he plotted all of this data on these huge, beautiful old school spreadsheets by hand. And when he stepped back and looked at his data, he saw that everything he was measuring, sleep time, wake time, body temperature, urine, electrolyte composition, everything followed these 24-hour cycles. So he, he concluded that a human kept in isolation with no way of knowing what time it was, would still operate in these biological cycles lasting about 24 hours. Now, that sounds kind of, oh, cool, cool fact, but just pause and think about that for a moment. So we live on a planet, Earth, obviously, it just happens to rotate at a speed that means that sun is overhead every 24 hours. That's just, you know, it happens to be the case on Earth. If you lived on Jupiter, the sun's overhead every 10 hours. Venus, it's, you know, about 250 Earth days. But if we are locked in a bunker, which could be on Jupiter, for all our body knows, our body will still insist on operating on these cycles that are 24 hours long. It's like the Earth's speed of rotation is somehow entrenched into your DNA, which is incredible, but it's not some cosmic coincidence. It's, it's obviously evolution. So animals like us, we've got to do the right thing at the right time to survive. We have pretty rubbish night vision. We're not very coordinated in the dark. So over evolutionary timescales, we developed these circadian rhythms to go to sleep when it's dark, you know, cover up and be safe in a cave. And then when the sun comes up again, we can be productive. And our ancestors who snoozed all day and decided to go hunting for berries at night weren't so successful and they um, died out of the gene pool. So that's how our body rhythms evolved. So it would match our planet's natural cycles of light and dark, which also explains why um, we get jet lag so badly. Mm. If we are to disrupt our circadian rhythms, if we're ever allowed to fly in uh, between countries <laughs> again, um, when, our sun, when suddenly all of our biological rhythms are just swapped, you know, 12 hours the wrong way, we feel awful because all of our hormones our, our mm. digestive juices everything is just out of whack and until it gets back in order um, we feel pretty crummy so sarah this is what the highlight of my, the book was for me having a bit of a ba- medical background but the beautiful historic stories that you've incorporated you've just gone the history of some of these stories is it's uh, i loved it and i am going to be promoting it because it's a gem so thank you very much sarah Sarah. Thank you. It was my favourite bit as well, the historical medical madness. Yeah. Attila the Hun. Um, <laughs> yes. I, just, I, I am quite stunned at the amount of research that you've done for this book and that you're try- – I mean, it's not as if you're just sort of sitting around doing nothing. I mean, you've written this book as training to be a neurologist. When do you get your letters? When do you become a like fully-fledged neurologist? The end of next year. The end of next year. So, what, Really? Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's still a bit of a way to go. What do you have to learn before? <laughs> I think I need about another 100 EMGs, uh, little nerve conduction studies for my logbook, and then, and then I'm done. I've passed all the hurdles. It's just a time-based requirement. Oh, but thank a, you for checking in. The college will be listening. It's like an, appre- it's an apprenticeship, yeah? So you've got to do so many hours in so many different types of neurology and do so many it, procedures. It really is, Dr. Mel. I think that people going to med school don't necessarily realise it is an apprenticeship. You do a few years at, at med school listening to some lectures, but then you're out on the field 
out in the field learning everything practically, which is yeah. great. Yeah. Hey, very, very briefly, we've got 30 seconds. Mm. What has changed in the la- since you graduated in medical school till now? What's been the biggest change that you've seen in medicine? Oh, uh, recognising junior doctors' mental health. Yeah. Yep. Great. great, great Realising that working, you know, back-to-back shifts with unpaid overtime uh, is dangerous for everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Hopper. Great book. The book is called What's Wrong With Ya? That's the Australian version or What's Wrong With You? An Insider's Guide to Your Insides. Fantastic book available at all good bookstores, I'm sure and on on the uh, interweb as well. Thank you so much to all our guests, uh, Dr. Sarah Holper, uh, Professor Megan O'Donnell, also out there in somewhere in the Ethernet, uh, not Nurse EpiPen, Dr. G-Spot. And Nurse EpiPen is right in the studio with us this morning. I'm Dr. Mal. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. <laughs>